Hello, and welcome to another Respero podcast. Uh, I haven't uh, recorded a podcast in a couple of weeks because last week I was in the state of Washington backpacking with my son, John. We, we were in the North Cascades National Park, which is a place of astonishing beauty, spectacular mountain scenery. We were in a pretty remote part of the area called the Boston Basin, and uh, the reason we went there is because my son uh, is an accomplished rock climber, and he wanted to take me climbing with him. So we did that one day, and uh, that was an amazing experience, very challenging uh, mentally and emotionally physically, uh, but all, but also very exhilarating uh, at the same time. I'd never been climbing before ever, not indoors in a climbing gym, not outdoors, uh, never been in a climbing harness or used the ropes uh, in a real, you know, climbing situation. So to do that uh, in a in what for him was not that difficult of a place, but for me it was very challenging. That was that was an incredible experience. And I have a real appreciation now for climbers because there are so many skills involved, uh, not just the physical strength and agility that's required, but also problem-solving skills. And uh, so many... Uh, abilities with ropes and knots and knowing how to use your gear and knowing what gear to use and it and it requires so much focus which is really a great skill to be able to focus because I tell you when I was standing there on a cliff face with hundreds of feet below me nothing uh, you're pretty focused. I wasn't thinking about my to-do list or what I was going to have for dinner or whether or not the Cubs had won or lost that day. You're concentrated on what you're doing because if you lose concentration, there are consequences. You might fall. And I did fall and found myself hanging over those hundreds and hundreds of feet in just my harness and with a rope. But that's a story for another time. Uh, I was not in as much danger as it sounds. My son totally knew what he was doing, and I was safe and obviously made it uh, back to record another podcast today. Um, but it was a great experience. So today, in this podcast, I want to come back to a question that I had that was related to a previous podcast about communication and making direct requests. And I had a question about how to do that in the workplace. How to, uh, how, how to make direct requests, or is that even possible in a situation where you're, you're dealing with uh, subordinates and, or superiors, supervisors? And so I'd like to address that a little bit, but even more use that as kind of a springboard to talk about uh, some other things that are very, very important. So the question was, um, specifically, it was about how do I make direct requests with my 
administrative assistant or my intern, uh, well, that would be confusing because it's not really a request. If I need them to do something, I need them to do it. So, you know, it's not really a request. So that doesn't even apply in that kind of a situation. Well, my first response to that is, okay, everybody knows it's not a request and you need to be clear about that. But as you communicate with people who are supporting you, if you're their boss, you're their supervisor, um, you want to be careful to be clear and direct and kind without aggression or manipulation. And don't make people read your minds. So yeah, it may not be a request, but to communicate clearly and openly and with kindness is always possible and it's always crucial and we're going to come back and say much much more about that about how to uh, be when you have a certain power over someone else uh, that's really the thing I want to address the most in this podcast but then also what about with with uh, what about with my peers or especially with my supervisors? How do I make direct requests to, to my boss? I had a client a while back who we talked about this because uh, she had taken a job and the job wasn't quite what she thought it was going to be, but the main problem was she had a, a boss who really was making unreasonable demands. And they just expected way more of her than was humanly possible for her to do in terms of how much to do in a work day and what she was really trained and capable of doing. And he wasn't he wasn't very kind about it, so he was he was intimidating to her. And we talked about um, what it would be like for her to address this with him and just make some requests about the expectations for her job and her performance and then even even her pay and that was pretty daunting so we talked about um, strengthening her ask muscle so to speak by starting small and just uh, asking her boss could you please help me you've given me this list of things that you need so would you please help me prioritize those uh, because it's a big list and even just to be able to do that well, that was scary, but um, she made real progress on that. It reminded me of a of kind of a landmark study from the 1970s uh, that was about asking for small favors, making small requests uh, in the workplace. And it was a study done by a Harvard psychologist named Ellen Langer. Uh, it's kind of a famous called the copy machine study. And she uh, arranged for uh, someone to interrupt people who were in the middle of making photocopies in a busy office. And, and the person would interrupt in one of three ways. The first way was to say, excuse me, I have five pages. May, may I use the copy machine? And then the second way was to say, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the copy machine because I'm in a rush? And then the third way was to say, excuse me, I have five pages. 
uh, may I use the copy machine because I have to make copies. <laughs> and the results uh, were pretty interesting. When the interrupter just asked to cut in, that the first way of asking, uh, the request was granted about 50% of the time or a little over half the time, but with kind of a begrudging attitude. But when the interrupter provided a reason, the request was granted over 90% of the time with a pretty good attitude on the part of the person being interrupted, even when the reason was essentially meaningless, like in that third option. Can I use the copy machine? Because I have to make copies. Uh, pretty inane, but just providing a reason uh, helped a lot in, in getting people to respond well. Now our goal, as we said in the other podcast, isn't necessarily to figure out what works to get people to do what we want, but just to be clear and direct in our communication. But there, but there is a point in to be um, learned from that study, and that is just keep your ask simple and straightforward and, and provide a reason. That can really help. Just uh, a simple because uh, really can, can help. So for my client, for instance, to say, could you help me could you please help me prioritize this list because uh, I that would really help me to make sure I got the most important things done. So even to say something like that, um, she found that that went a long way with her boss. And so that's just uh, something to keep in mind if you're dealing with peers or supervisors in the workplace. Uh, it's okay to make an ask, to make a direct request, and it can help to, to give uh, a reason. But bottom line, the reason why communication can be challenging in the workplace is because of a power imbalance. And that's inherent, of course, to being in a workplace where there are people who are in charge and people who are subordinate. But any place where there's a power imbalance is challenging because people don't handle power well, which creates toxic emotional environments, which creates stress and diminishes performance. So so wise bosses are aware of this and work hard to make sure that the emotional environment for people in their workplace is, is not toxic. But that's difficult because people don't handle power well. Uh, I love this story that Henry Cloud tells about um, an incident in a workplace. And if you've heard me teach, you may have heard me share this story uh, it's a true story. Uh, Henry Cloud says that uh, a guy had built uh, a company from, from scratch. He started it from nothing, built it into a big company, and his son was the heir apparent who was going to take over the company. So the founder was going to retire in a few years, and the son was going to take over, and the, the dad was trying to train the son. But one day he, he walked through the factory floor, and he witnessed his son angrily berating an employee. 
in front of other employees. And so he motioned for his son to come upstairs into his office. And they get in the office and he sits him down and he says to his son, David, I wear two hats here. I'm the boss and I'm your father. Right now, I'm going to put my boss hat on. You're fired. I will not have that in my company, what you just did to that employee. I won't have it in my culture. I won't have people treated that way. I won't have anything that even looks like that. I've told you this. This is nothing new. I have told you for two years that unless that went away, this was not going to work. I've told you to work on it. I've given you the opportunity to get a coach and work on it. But now you're done. You're fired. That's the bottom line. Now, let me put my father hat on for a second. Son, I heard you just lost your job. Can I help you in some way? That's a true story, and <clears throat> there's so much um, there's so much about that story that that's good. But the main point I want to make is that guy, the the dad, the founder of the company, he understood how important it was to have a positive emotional climate in his workplace. And that's so consistent with everything we're, we've learned about neuroscience um, and how our brain works. If you're in a toxic emotional environment, it affects your brain because of the, the stress it creates. And, that, and that's why it's so hard to work in a place where you're not being treated well or, or where there's fear, or where there's just uh, intimidation. And, and so this idea of, of being able to communicate with people, especially when you're a supervisor, especially when you're, you have some kind of uh, power over them, is so, is so crucial. And it's crucial, if you're not the one in charge, to understand the effect that it has on you if there is a toxic emotional environment in your workplace and, and what to do about it. Uh, I, I ran across um, some things that have been written by uh, a man named Bob Sutton. And I, I'm just going to apologize in advance for the crudity of the title of his book. Um, it's, it's crude, but it's, it communicates. And he wrote a book called The No Asshole Rule. Building a Civilized Workplace and Surviving One That Isn't. I actually ran across this uh, referenced in a, another book entitled Reviving Old Scratch, uh, which is sort of another unfortunate title, but it's actually a very good book about uh, spiritual warfare of all things and how to think about um, demons and the devil for doubters and the disenchanted. That book's by Richard Beck and that's definitely worth reading but he references this book by Bob Sutton called uh, The No Asshole Rule and it's talking about this very same thing and the work power used in, inappropriately in the workplace and Bob Sutton was asked to um, reflect on his experiences working with businesses and other organizations. Um, he was uh, invited to share 
something at a at a big conference, and he decided to talk about this whole idea of of not having people in your company who were jerks. I'm going to use that that word uh, from now on. <laughs> so the no jerk rule, let's say. Because uh, Bob Sutton had, when he had had his own company, he and his colleagues had really had a good environment. It was warm and friendly. People liked coming to work and being together. And so their, their company was thriving and productive and people were happy and the work was getting done. And when they would contemplate uh, hiring a new person into that company, they wanted to make sure that this new person didn't mess with this good thing they had going. So was this person going to be mean and competitive and selfish and petty? So during their interview process, they, they wanted to weed out the jerks. And so they had this zero tolerance policy toward rude and nasty behavior in the workplace because they prized and cultivated respectful and kind behavior throughout the company. There's, there's so much genius in that. And of course, we would, we would resonate with that as Christians, as followers of Jesus. That's, that's, that's how we want to be. That's, those are the kind of environments we want to create and that we want to contribute to. But this, this, uh, his point of uh, staying clear of jerks was good for business just makes so much sense. And he talks... In this book, The No Jerk Rule, most of his attention is focused on how superiors treat subordinates in the workplace, how the boss treats the administrative assistant, or how a manager treats the janitorial staff. Because according to him, nastiness in the workplace is mainly associated with issues of hierarchy and power and how those things can poison basic human kindness and respect. So for example, uh, he, t he talks about two tests to identify a jerk in your, in your workplace. Test one, after talking to the alleged jerk, do you feel oppressed, humiliated, de-energized, or belittled by that person? Do you feel in particular worse about yourself? In test two, does the alleged jerk aim his or her venom at people who are less powerful rather than at those people who are more powerful? So test one describes what it feels like to interact with a jerk, and test two describes how jerks tend to operate. They tend to wield power over others, belittling, oppressing, bossing around, generally being nasty to subordinates. And so... This just points out and illustrates the importance of implementing um, patterns of communication and behavior where you treat people, especially subordinates, with dignity and respect. And you, this is not about a policy in a workplace. This is about people. You cannot legislate kindness through a memo or a meeting. It's a matter of character. And so Bob Sutton summarizes by saying the difference between how a person treats the powerless versus the powerful is as good a measure of human character as I know. And amen to that, how we would resonate that with 
with that as, as followers of Jesus. And it's just, and so this whole idea of communication really unearths this, this um, our character. How we communicate, how we treat people is, is such a barometer of how we are really forming our character. And our character is inter indicated so much by by how we use or misuse power. Because people are prone to misuse power. There's another study by a, a woman named Deborah Grunfeld. It's kind of a, also a well-known study where she observed groups of, of three individuals. Uh, just three individuals asked to discuss a controversial topic. But one of the three participants was randomly appointed to evaluate the recommendations of the other two, which meant being placed as the judge in just a slightly higher power role. And then later in this experiment, the three participants were uh, brought a plate of five cookies, which was intentionally an odd number so that only two of the three could help themselves to a second cookie. And here's what the researchers found out. Power corrupts the supposed high-status participant, the one randomly selected to be the judge, was more likely, to, far more likely, actually, to take a second cookie, chew with his or her, her mouth open, and get crumbs on the table. And so the conclusion was that this, this silly study just was scary because it shows how having just a slight power edge causes regular people to grab the cookies for themselves and act like rude pigs. Just think about the effects in thousands of interactions every year. In other words, jerks aren't born, they're made. Power breeds nastiness. There are many other studies and, and things to confirm this, but we pretty much know it's true from our own lives and, and even our own hearts. So, if you're a boss at work, make sure that you are not creating a toxic emotional environment with, with the people with whom you're working. Make sure that you are kind and respectful and don't belittle them, don't make them feel uh, powerless. But I want to take a minute and talk about this in other relationships, not just the workplace. Because think about, think about this in marriage. Think, think about how important it is to, to not have a power imbalance then in marriage because of how that power imbalance, is, we are so prone to misuse it. I think this is why in the New Testament um, it says specifically to husbands to love their wives sacrificially because there was a power imbalance in that culture, in that Greco-Roman culture of the, of the era in which the New Testament is written. So when, when Paul writes to the, to the Ephesians, 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So clearly that idea of sacrifice and doing what is in her best interest, putting that above your own needs and your own wants. I think that's in response to questions that people were having about marriage, like what does it look like to be married as Christians now? What does this mean that I'm, I've become a follower of Jesus, and how does that affect things like my marriage? And the point was that, yeah, we are to be radically different as Christ followers. And what that means in marriage is it's not about power. It's not about who's in charge. Men, do not use your power to manipulate or oppress your wife. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're a husband, you're to be like Jesus in that marriage. You are to seek to serve her and seek what is truly in her best interests. And I think this is said in such a strong way and husbands are told other places to not be harsh to their wives to be kind i think it's because of this very same dynamic that if there's a power if it feels like there's a power imbalance that we don't use power well even in small ways so we need to be careful about that in in our relationships in our families and in the church uh, in, in the church, um, there was to be no, no subordinates, so to speak. In the church, in that early church especially, where all the different social strata were represented, and that was such a unique experience. That's why they're told so often in the New Testament to, to see everyone as equal, to, to treat everyone as equal, and that's why they're phrases like do not lord it over one another or consider others better than yourself be devoted to one another in in, in love honor one another they were and on and on they were told that over and over to make that point that there there's no power imbalance in the church and you are not better than. You are to work hard to, to treat everyone well and to put other people's interests above yourself. That's so important for pastors and church leaders to, to recognize and to put into place. So there's so many realms of life where this is crucial to... Um, to not use, to not have a power imbalance and to not use power uh, to manipulate or oppress people or treat people badly. Like what about in, in parenting where there pretty much clearly is a power imbalance? I think of that some too. Um, that's why I think parenting is such a spiritual transformation exercise because it's really about using power well for the sake of others, for the sake of your children, and that requires so much character. Maybe that's why humans take so long to develop, longer than other mammals, to develop physically and uh, the ability to walk and talk and things like that. Humans have a longer period of development. Maybe that's really about training the parents and, and putting these vulnerable babies and infants and toddlers in the care of parents uh, 
so that the parents will will not misuse this this power but they will learn how to use it for the benefit of their children and and so this is this is just something that's crucial the way we communicate I've kind of strayed far away from the original question but the way we communicate of course is an indicator and is essential to this this whole idea of of treating people well and not creating toxic emotional environments in our workplaces and in our homes so we need to learn to be direct with kindness and to never use power to belittle people or manipulate people Jesus never did it's so fascinating to think of this um, with regard to how Jesus was offered power when he was tempted by Satan. One of the things that Satan offered him was, you can, I offer you all the kingdoms of the world and this power over other people. And Jesus said, no, I don't need that. I, I want to love people and serve people, not Lord, not just have power over them. And that's how he treated people. And I think people knew that, that Jesus was not out to use them for his own benefit. And that's why, that's why it was so different to be around him and so attractive and why people were drawn to him. They could sense from the way he talked to them, from the way he listened to them, from the way he looked them in the eye and just treated them like real people of great value. And we can be like that. We are called to be like that. So, direct requests in the workplace. The main issue is how are you treating people, especially people who have less power than you? And am I able to be clear and direct and kind without, without hurting people, without making them feel small? Am I able to in the way I use my words with people to, to value them and communicate that um, I want to serve them and, and help them even when it's I need, I need them to do something for me in the workplace. So, a lot wrapped up in all that. We are called to be different in our workplaces, in our homes, in the way we treat people, in the way we talk to people. So... Uh, Lord help us to do that. Uh, as always, I want to make a plug for Respero and especially our um, the classes that we offer in the fall for um, training for people to be involved in relational care ministries, but also just to learn and grow themselves. So we have a class called Foundations for Healthy Relationships starting late September. In Santa Cruz, also one in San Jose, you can uh, see more about that and sign up for those on our website, respero, R-E-S-P-E-R-O dot org. And uh, that's the first eight-week class in our training series. And as always, Respero is dependent uh, on the generosity of others, the work that we do providing counseling at no cost, providing classes and groups uh, to help people navigate life and follow Jesus together.
Let me close with uh, the prayer of St. Francis today, I think. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. Amen.